The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 21st chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. When some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. They asked him, Teacher, when will this be? And what will be the sign that this is about to take place? And he said, Beware that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name and say, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be afraid, for these things must take place, but the end will not follow immediately. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and plagues. And there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. But before all of this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds not to to prepare your defense in advance. For I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, by relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Sometimes uh, some Christians think it's the end of the world. In fact, there have probably always been some Christians who at any time in history have thought that the end of the world was coming soon. Certainly the first century Christians thought so. That's really the, the context of First and Second Thessalonians. We know that Christians during the years of the Black Death, or the plague, which came and went, but really hit hard in the mid-1300s, they definitely thought that was God's judgment and the end of the world, and not for uh, bad reason either. Of course, we know these days there's all sorts of Christians who think that the end of the world is nigh. And indeed, the words of Jesus in Luke can be quoted with some regularity, right? Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. How many Christians through the centuries have sought to figure out which nation or which kingdom or which earthquake or which famine, uh, which pestilence this prophesied? How many signs have been read into tragic events? We often laugh at how wrong the prognosticators are, uh, but that doesn't seem to stop even more from coming to the fore. One of my favorites is Edgar Wisenant's 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Well, we don't really even believe in a rapture per se, but even if we did, it definitely didn't happen in 1988. My understanding is he wrote books and 1989 and then 93 and 94 as well. 
I suppose at some point, you know, the prediction of the end of the world will be right, be like that broken clock that's right twice a day. Someone will be able to claim credit for saying, aha, I told you that the end was near. I don't know that there is really much of a benefit to knowing or believing when the world will end, though. Seems like it would actually just be a dread that would hang over your head, or as we see in First and Second Thessalonians, uh, it'll be an excuse to become lazy and to not work. I mean, why bother? The end of the world is coming. Maybe it would give us a reason to give everyone else or get them all worked up about their salvation. They'd finally like take us seriously. But I doubt that's how it would go down. Uh, I think it'd be more like uh, Philadelphia after they, they win the Super Bowl. You know what I mean? And not a good scene. There have definitely been times... Uh, Not that I was sure that the world was coming to an end, but that the world as I have known it was coming to an end. I guess we call these things new normals. We're definitely, I think, in the process of creating a new normal. More and more, I find myself to be a stranger in a strange land, holding to an increasingly minority Christian worldview, more and more defending things that those who are younger than me, if not older than me as well, but definitely younger than me, think are ridiculous or even cruel. The TikTok generation, it has become a force to be reckoned with at the workplace, in the culture, and certainly in politics as well. For the most part, they do not possess Christian values as the majority of them really have never been taught them. Most of their formation has been by and through institutions that are openly hostile to Christianity. Our public schools, our universities, our entertainment complexes, our media, our social media, they're really almost all, I can think of very few exceptions where they are are run by a Christian. They're really all run by uh, unbelievers, agnostics, atheists, or maybe at best something like a new age free spirit. Now Christians are trying to catch up. We're trying to compete with alternate media or alternate schools and platforms and news channels, etc. But no matter how popular they may be in our own circles, their influence remains limited. Now, again, not that any of that means that the end of the world is nigh, but it is a reminder that Christians are becoming strangers in a strange land. And really, this is how I think we were always meant to be. There is no promise in the gospel of cultural domination or normalcy, as much as we want that, and as much fruit as that bears for the world. There is no promise that we will be liked or believed or admired. There's no reason to believe that the hard life of virtue will be easily able to compete with the easy promise of vice. So what do we do when we feel the pinch? What do we do when we think that our world is changing and we are becoming less welcome in it. Our first tendency is always going to be to retreat. 
but that is probably not the right answer. Our reading from 2 Thessalonians is pretty instructive, actually. On the one hand, the issues of 2 Thessalonians are pretty niche. Right? That of Christians who are not working, who are taking from the community because they believe the end of the world was imminent. I mean, right, it makes sense. Why go through all the trouble of planting a harvest if the world is going to end before, you know, before the springtime comes? But on the other hand, it speaks to our need because Paul has no patience with that, even though Paul probably also believed that the end of the world was coming soon. Uh, he says, no, no, we have to keep going. We have to continue working. We still have this mission to fulfill. Because even though we don't know when the world might come to an end, Judgment Day will come. And making disciples between now and then is our mission. Can we be tempted to give up for whatever reason? Sure. Maybe we don't worry at all about the world ending, but maybe we find ourselves outnumbered. Maybe so many people think that we're strange, we just start to get more and more quiet. Maybe it becomes easier to just go along than to join the crowd. But none of those are good options either. And to thread an even finer needle, the media faction of Christianity really doesn't help. In other words, what I'm trying to say is this isn't a good option, this isn't a good option. Well, there's Christians over here that give you this option. I'm saying, well, actually, this option isn't good either. What do I mean? Well, on occasion, I make the mistake, I think, of scrolling through uh, channel 14, if you ever use your antenna. That's the religion channels, 14.1, 14.2. It's got the Hillsong and the TBNs and all that kind of thing. And, and Adeline thinks it's hysterical. Uh, it, it, it sort of bores me to tears or really begins to annoy me when I listen to what they have to say. And week in and week out, in, in only a few minutes, I think you can capture this self-empowering drivel, really. There is no... Resurrected Jesus, there is no Christian worldview, there are no hard lines, there are no tough decisions, no carrying across. It's really a retreat in many ways from reality. It all becomes all about you and how things are going to be better. It's kind of like sticking a pacifier in a baby's mouth. It's, it's a pacifier for a childish Christian. But the Christian adult doesn't need or ask for soothing words. And according to Paul, we don't just get to sit back and watch the world burn and say to ourselves, everything's going to be okay, as some kind of mantra. No, we engage in every area of life. That is what making disciples looks like. That is fulfilling our commission and when Jesus gave this commission to his disciples, famously in Matthew 28, uh, would that have been an easy message for the disciples to hear? Well, of course not. Most of them died at the hands of evil men. And like them, we have a gospel to spread. And no one is going to do it for us. Waiting for the world to end, waiting for someone else to do the work is not a solution. Looking for signs in the events of the day as a way to convince yourself 
that you're almost off the hook, that is not a solution either. There has only ever been one solution to this problem of sin and all of the ways it manifests itself, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that's not just a cliche. That is a robust error or answer to a very complex problem. For the gospel is not just about the forgiveness of your personal sins. It is the whole counsel of God. It is the complete response of God to the messes that we make. The gospel is also about the sacredness of human life. It is about the reconciliation between people and communities and even nations. It's about having purpose and meaning of recognizing the goodness of God's law, of living lives of of meaning and hope and peace and joy, participating in God's creation by having families and being married, living for others more than yourself, and believing in and for your own resurrection from the dead. I mean, the gospel is all of those things. It's not just this solution to the problem of your personal sin. But it's the way that in Christ all sin can be resolved. It's the destruction of sin's power and influence in every sphere of life, from your heart to your nation and everything in between. Now, how is such a message spread? One thing is for sure, no one is going to do it for us. It must be spread in our communities, spread in our workplaces, spread on social media, I guess, if we must, (laughs) spread in our peer groups. It can often be done best, I think, actually by asking questions. That's something Christians will often say, well, I don't know what to say. Well, just ask questions. Uh, That's the easiest approach, let people speak. People want to speak. People want to be heard. Here's some prompts, for example. Just as an example, you could maybe put on a social media profile. Just put it out there to get the ball rolling. Wait for people to respond. Ask, do you go to church? If people go to church, they'll want to tell you about it because it's an open invitation from you to, you know, to be invited to church. Don't, don't go to their church, but I'm just giving an example. If they don't, they might be willing to tell you why. You know, they might have a, had a bad experience, something that that you could say, well, that that is a bad experience. I wouldn't go to church either if that were the case. Uh, But you could just simply flesh that out, let people speak. You know, ask them if if people grew up in church. What was was that like? What was your worst experience? People have them. They may want to speak about it. Uh, Or maybe some of your best memories. Or you could ask more, you know, philosophical, if you will, questions. You know, should children be taught Christianity or should they be free to pursue whatever they like? You get the idea. Sometimes questions. Let people talk. Listen to what they say. But is the world ending? It's sort of always ending. But we don't know when. I think the world as we have known it is ending. Should we just give up and wait for Jesus to solve all of our problems? No. Jesus himself gave us a mission. It's not an option. It's not a question. 
And all of those who embark on this mission will be blessed. He, he says it right at the end of our gospel. You will save your souls by embarking on this work. For though this mission is definitely fraught with frustration, it is a righteous mission. It is without a doubt the right thing to do, the right way to live. For it is what the risen Christ said to his disciples, and he also says to you, make disciples of all people, of all nations. Even as your world is changing, or even ending. Amen. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 23rd chapter. When they came to the place that is called the skull, They crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing, and the people stood by watching. But the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, have you heard of the recent election? It was quite controversial, but we can now declare a winner. Christ has once again been elected king of the world. It took a lot of work collecting all those ballots from all over the universe, but we finally have gotten them and we believe counted in a safe and fair process and having tabulated every ballot, Jesus again is king. It was a closer-than-expected election, however, because Jesus' main rival, Lucifer, he continues to go around and tell people that he is the king of the world. And many people believe his lies because they'll often say, well, Jesus can't possibly be king because look at all the evil that is taking place in the world, so it must be this, this Lucifer, this Satan, this devil guy. But no, Christ remains king. And it is only that Lucifer has some power so that God's glory can more fully be revealed at a later time. Well, of course, there's only one problem with that little fantasy. It's the fantasy that we can choose who our king is. 
Kings, you see, are kings by divine right. They are the end of the line when it comes to authority. They have an absolute claim that no one else can deny. And God must then, by definition, be the final authority, the final arbiter of all justice and truth in this world. And as his son, of course, Jesus shares this reign with his father. Christ, therefore, is king. And not because we say so, not because we declare it, not because of majority rule or some vote that was taken. No, because that is his nature. That's what Paul seems to want to stress and say in so many ways, every way he can imagine in Colossians 1. King, of course, is not a throwaway title either. Kings are all over the Bible, the idea of kings. Israel famously wants a king because they know that with a good monarch, really good things can happen for Israel. A wise and just and good king can be a tremendous blessing. But the prophet Samuel, he warns them that there is another side to this uh, kingdom, and that is a cruel and vicious and weak man can be a curse to his people. And Israel, of course, did win some wonderful victories under the kingdoms of Saul and David and Solomon. But many more evil kings, I'm afraid, were empowered to murder, to pillage, to worship false gods, and eventually to invite God's wrath. In Jesus' day, Israel was still hoping for a king. There was this expected Messiah or Savior that was going to come to the people of Israel and, of course, solve the mess that they were in, which was they were occupied by these pagan, idolatrous Romans. And Jesus gives many indications that he is, in fact, going to be this the Savior for them. He performs many miracles that no one can deny. He attracts large crowds. In fact, he's always thinning out the crowd, trying to get to the true believers. Um, and he's certainly familiar with the scriptures. I mean, he defies even the greatest rabbis and the Pharisees of his day. So in many ways, he seems to fit the bill. The problem is that Jesus is not going to be the king of this one nation. That's not his mission. He is, in fact, going to be the king of all the nations. He won't be limited to this one little territory and some little military leader or something like that. No, he is going to be the king of the world. In fact, that's not even like his mission. That would be speaking of it far too lowly. This is just his reality. And as king of all the nations, he does far more than a thousand Davids ever could. He lives a perfect life. He dies a perfect death, a sacrificial death that appeases the wrath of God and exercises God's judgment of all sinners. And for trusting in Christ's perfection, he offers salvation. It's a pretty good king. It's a salvation that you can't earn, you can't buy, you can't work for it. Agree with him that he is king and that you are not and you can be saved. Let him die for you and you will be saved.
That seems like a pretty good king. That seems like a pretty good deal. His accusers at his crucifixion were right, I guess, about one thing you might say. They said, if you're king, take yourself off of the cross. But his mission wasn't to be the king of just those people, but rather to die a perfect death for the sins of the whole world. Therefore, he could not get off of that cross. So we should not make the same mistake as the scoffers make at Jesus' crucifixion. Because Jesus' kingdom isn't up to a vote. It's not some small kingdom he seeks to rule. To put it bluntly, Jesus doesn't go around asking people that he might be their king. He is telling you that he is the king of the whole world. That's something that I think we have stopped insisting on in the church. We have turned Jesus into this kind figure that will do things for us if we ask in a really nice way. And it's like Jesus is knocking, that's the famous picture, right? Jesus knocking on the door. Please, please let me into your heart. Let me be king of your life. No, what we are insisting on, what we must insist on, is that Christ is king of the whole world. Some examples. It might seem a bit obscure, but bear with me. There are different ideas about how best to defend the Christian faith in the public square. Right? This is called apologetics. And without spending an hour dissecting all of this, I'll only say there are pretty much two sort of camps as to how best to do this. One camp really believes that you can present the unbelieving world with evidences about the existence of God, the resurrection of Jesus, etc., and that that's the best approach. The other side says, it insists, in fact, that humanity has been made in the image of God, that that can be appealed to, that God has revealed himself in the words of Scripture, and that the unbelief of the person can be spoken of as one who's been made in God's image. I'm in the latter camp. When we defend our Christian faith to the world, we should presuppose God's existence and his kingship. Asking unbelievers to sort of, I don't know, take God for a test drive. Well, try this argument on for size. Try this evidence. See if that works for you. It's really actually to treat God like a criminal in the king's court rather than the king himself. Many Christians will say that Christ is king in one moment, but then in the next moment, they'll bring God down to the place of understandability or relatability to the unbeliever, as if God has some kind of explaining to do, as if God has done something wrong and we must justify him. No, you see, the king has the right to demand that of us, and we all know that. Because we're made in God's image. And that can be spoken to, to the unbeliever. That can be addressed. It won't bear repentance 100% of the time, but that's the goal. The goal is repentance in our proclamation and our apologetics, not a rational change of mind. Those are two different goals, aren't they? I think so. I think one honors Christ as king. I think one... We'll talk about Christ as king in one's own heart and mind, but we'll see for the rest of the world. 
Speaking of, we reject the kingship of Christ when we blatantly disregard his teachings. And in so many ways, Jesus could not have been more clear. Uh, Or people will say, well, you know, Jesus didn't say anything about this particular issue, so, you know, it's probably fine. Uh, If there is a church celebrating Christ the King Sunday today, or if any church claims that Christ is king but then goes on to argue with Christ himself, they have no idea who they are dealing with. If Christ is king, he gets the last say. To contradict Christ is to take your life into your own hands. And yet, as many congregations continue to peddle false teachings, whether on revamped ethics, the prosperity gospel, or obsessions over wealth and race, That is exactly what they are doing. They are taking the focus off the true gospel and they are leading souls away from Christ by doubting his kingship in the first place. But it isn't just others who reject Christ as king. It is us too. Christ must reign supreme in our hearts. Not because we we have, you know, he is inviting us or something of that nature because we recognize his authority, right? We recognize his authority. When we are tempted to sin or when we live in overtly worldly ways, when we prioritize everything else over the kingdom of God again and again, we should be convicted. We should see that we have not recognized Christ as king either, but we are trying to live by our own standards, on our own terms, as though we have the sovereign right to do so. If that is you, if that is me, we must repent and trust in the true king instead. And in case we have forgotten, or I've sounded too harsh today, who is this king? The gospel tells us. This king goes to the cross of his own power and his own will, And he dies for the sins of the world. He suffers in silence. He prays for his enemies. He forgives us of our grievous wrongs, having taken the penalty that we deserve. So again, Jesus isn't coming knocking on the door of your heart and asking you to allow him to be your king. Christ is king. That is our proclamation to the world as a matter of reality. Will we accept that reality? Can we let him be our king? I hope so, because he is the best king that you could ever hope for. Amen.